Father, we come to you today and just worship you and, and praise you. And as Rob even prayed, Lord, we thank you for the moisture that you've brought us and, and just how you provide for us and how you bless. Um, like you say, you make your sunrise on the evil and the good and, and on the just and the unjust, Lord. And you, you just provide and you, um, we thank you for that, how you watch over us and protect us. And thank you for uh, this community. We lift it up to you, Lord. We pray that we would be instruments of yours um, to just bring salvation and, and your light to this, to this town that you've brought us to as a body. Lord, we lift up, uh, as I said, Pastor Sean, who's still down in Africa. We just pray you bless him today and watch over him and bring him home safely. And Lord, we know he's such a blessing to um, Beverly and the, the other guys that minister down there. And we just pray you would uh, make it a fruitful time and uh, we know he's, he's really busy and at times can feel overwhelmed down there. And we just pray that he would even be able to have peace and, and rest in the midst of such a busy time and with the uh, um, dangers of uh, disease and even violence and things. Lord, we just, again, please have your hand on him and watch over him and bring him home safely to us, Lord. And uh, for his family also, God, we just lift them up to you and... Uh, you know, I know that they, um, it's hard to be alone and to be uh, separated for that time. So we lift up Autumn and his daughters and just pray you be with them also. Lord, we uh, just lift up our nation to you. Lord, we know it's, it seems uh, every day the headlines are filled with some new bad news. And there is much to be concerned about in our world. There's much to be even hopeless about at times if we just read the headlines and if we just go by what we see and what we hear. But we, Lord, we know that you are sovereign, that you are a great and mighty God, that you are a loving God. And I pray, give us peace and help us again to be lights in this world as we see it becoming darker and darker around us. And with the elections coming up, Lord, we lift up after that Paul wrote these letters that he was martyred for his faith in Rome, for his stand. And like many last words, we see a summary of what Paul knew to be precious and important to a teacher of the gospel. Things that he had learned through all the years of hard service in the gospel. And he wants to impart these things to his most beloved disciple, Timothy. So that's just a little background. And uh, so I'll just read, I think I'm going to read the whole first chapter. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, 
if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to, me, to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a lot, wasn't it? You could teach on any section of that. You know, in the first chapter, we see Paul's customary introduction and greeting in the first two verses. Paul gives a reminder of some previous instructions and the prime reason, he says, the aim of their charge, as Paul puts it, for their ministry in verses 3 through 5. We see a brief description of the problems they face in verses 6 through 11, problems that all ministries face. A short testimony and reminder of Paul's former life in verses 12 through 17. And a summary of these issues in 18 and 19. And finally, we see this example in the last couple verses of these two men who exemplify these sins described earlier and the chosen modus operandi for dealing with such souls as these, saying he's turned them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. But, just, you know, there's so much content in here. There's so much that we can gain from it. But I read the whole part of this chapter just to let's get you know just to get a whole picture. This is you know a few more chapters of Timothy, but this really kind of sets the stage for the whole book and the point that that Paul is trying to get across to his disciple. But this morning I'd like to key in on pretty much on verse five. That simple verse where he says the aim of our charge is this love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You know, this verse jumped out at me when I was reading through this book the other day, and this is what I really, you know how it is, you're studying the scripture, you may have read the book many times, but this really, you know, I'm one of these guys that's, um, let me, let's just get to the point of what we're trying to get to here. 
You know, I don't really like beating around the bush and a lot of, uh, um, and you know, when I hear, when I see verses like this in the Bible that says, hey, Timothy, remember, I'm telling you all these things and we have these problems, we have these issues that we're dealing with, but this is the aim. This is what we're aiming for. This is the point of what we're going for right here. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. And, you know, when we, when we read these letters again, what we want to understand is that these, these letters are essentially Paul kind of passing the mantle to Timothy. You know, and Paul had an incredible ministry, an incredible, you know, in the book of Acts, we see him, you know, he's responsible for most of the, you know, a good chunk of the New Testament. And we see what a fruitful life. And he's essentially all of the, the wealth of knowledge that he's gained from God, the insights, the wisdom, this is what he's trying to pass on to Timothy, and he says, this is our aim. This is the point. Not to stack up great deeds, not to gain lofty spiritual knowledge and accolades, not to gain some amazing state of spiritual perfection on this planet, but love. And the amazing thing is, as simple as that sounds, this is truly the most taxing, the most difficult charge we could imagine. Really, it's even a suicide mission, if you will, a hopeless endeavor if we embark on this course without God's Holy Spirit. Because sometimes it's easier to stack up great deeds. Sometimes it's easier to study and to be smarter than whoever, but love. Now, to this point, I think we can find agreement with this teaching in the world. All you need is love. Does that sound familiar? As the Beatles once sang, make love, not war, as some of you baby boomers may have chanted back in the 60s. And in the words of William Shakespeare, he wrote, love all, trust a few, do wrong to none. Now, all of these quotes ring true, don't they? I mean, some of them even have this flavor of biblical truth. But what happened to the Beatles? You know, pride, division, jealousy, hate. You know, the baby boomer generation, despite the, some great achievements, instead of being the instruments of peace on earth, they ushered in a new era that is responsible for the proliferation of divorce, of promiscuity, and of all kinds of other societal ills that we face today. I'm not blaming anybody here today, so don't take it personal. <laughs> and William Shakespeare's plays are more often an ode to the tragic nature of a fallen world than they are anything even closely resembling the hope we have in this true love that the apostle speaks of. You know, I've studied through this, and there's literally tens of thousands of quotes about love in modern literature, all kinds of famous people, everybody from Gandhi to Marilyn Monroe, you know, you can, and everything in between. When I looked at this one, the website that has a, kind of a database of all these famous quotes from famous people, quotes on love were almost 50,000, like 48,000 quotes. And that's far and away the leader of any other topic. The next closest topic would be, you know, for instance, the quotes on life or humor. And they're somewhere in the 30,000s. So love is something as a society that we are truly obsessed with. 
that we realize is important, that we seek after, that we idealize in our media constantly. And I think it's that way because we as humans are created in God's image, but separated from him through sin. And we're constantly seeking to establish and even create love for ourselves. And we do this because, like I said, we feel something. We know something's there. We feel it when we look into someone's eyes we love, when we yearn for our children. And we feel it when we're hurt by someone we've truly given our hearts to. And as we try to create something in God's image, we're inevitably going to get it wrong. Because God, who is love, cannot be created by or through anything in his creation. He is separate and holy and completely different than anything we can see or touch or hear or feel with our flesh. So it's easy reading some of these quotes to become kind of lost when we're trying to define love by the world's standards. These quotes that I read are sometimes are very contradictory. One person says this about love. One person says this about love. And they can sometimes be completely opposite. You know, the Beatles would say, all you need is love. And then you might have to remind me, who was the band that said, love stinks? Right. And both of them are completely true in a fleshly sense at times. You know what I mean? Depending on where you're at, because we're, we're always moving around as human beings in our hearts. But here in 1 Timothy we see a qualification of what godly love is, one that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now I would ask, are any of these possible apart from the grace and indwelling of the Spirit of God? I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm sure some of you may argue, yeah, it's possible to, to have a pure heart, to be good or sincere apart from God. Now, I'm not one of these. You know, God's proven to me over and over again, these things are certainly not possible for me and in and of myself. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the embodiment of all these things perfectly. And that'll be kind of a preview for maybe some content later. Because he alone is pure. He alone is good. And he alone is sincere. And these are things all the time, to everybody, everywhere, without fail, forever and ever. Amen. You know, I might be good here for a moment, for a very small moment, but really bad over here. (laughs) I might be sincere in one thing, but insincere in another. And I think, you know, as human beings, that's just our nature. That's who we are. And I want to look at each one of these characteristics in some detail, but I think, again, just to kind of flesh out this idea of what does the Bible say about love? And I didn't even think about this, but my wife brought this up, is that Valentine's is right around the corner. So (laughs) maybe maybe there is some some application here. But uh, we just, you know, because, again, the world just seems so confused about this and is so hurting because of this issue of how they how they fail to understand what true love really is. Now, to begin, you know, one of my new favorite memory verses is Jonah 2, 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's just a small verse. That's why I was able to remember it. 
so far. But the prophet Jonah, while in the belly of this great fish, crying out to God in the midst of his punishment, realized that God was a loving God, that God was a caring God. Now, this seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? How could a loving God allow for a man to be thrown alive into the raging sea? How could a loving God allow for him to be swallowed alive, to be traumatized and terrified, to be brought to the point of despair, and to finally be vomited out in a strange place? Is that love? Does that sound loving? Don't we hear that a lot from the world? How could a loving God fill in the blank? But what we know is in Jonah's life, this was the most loving thing that he could have done. Because God loved the innocents in Nineveh. God loved the people in Nineveh who would repent. Even so far as to mention the livestock in Nineveh, who Jonah was being sent to preach, for those of you for anyway. So God's love is different than our love because he sees things that we don't see. And he loves in a way that goes far beyond what our definition is. But hear what he says about the trade we make when one misplaces his love. That when you do that, you completely give up any chance of attaining true, lasting, and eternal love. But how ready we often are to do just this. We'll just, we'll just trade it in a second for something, for a vain idol that is unable to love us back. And then when we do that, it says we forsake we give up, we forsake all hope of steadfast love, of that love that will never leave us. You know, whatever love we may receive from this world is transitory, and as such is essentially cruel. This is because, again, God is love, and God created us in his image, and our appetite and our capacity for love, for true love, is inexhaustible. And when that love ends, when we've given our hearts to somebody, when we've given our hearts to something, whatever it is, the pain and loss one experiences, it tends to override and replace whatever temporary satisfaction or good feeling we may have had, we may have derived from that. You know, how many marriages have come to an end with people who were once so in love now hating each other as mortal enemies? How many people who once loved some vice or loved something are, so, are now so repelled and embarrassed by their former deeds? Yet this is what Jonah is saying. Whatever else you put in the place of God will be because it's not God. Because God says, I'm faithful. So whatever else you put in that place is not faithful. It will let you down. It will disappoint you. It will hurt you. You know, and when we do that, one of the things that really struck home for me is, you know, guys, that type of love, that steadfast love that will never leave you, forsake you, that will be with you through anything forever and ever, that's your birthright. If you're saved here today, if you're one of God's sons and daughters, that's a right you have in him. And you give that up. You know, you give it away. No one can take it from you. Now, this is why Paul would write about love in this masterful description in his letter to the Corinthians. This passage that we'll actually go through a little bit in 
1 Corinthians 13, that is read at many weddings. And one of the things he says that characterizes godly, true love says love never fails. Some of your Bibles would say love never ends. And that is how we see God's love repeatedly defined. This idea that it never stops, it never gives up, it never quits. And that's what steadfast really means. You know, Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, and I think having that idea of steadfastness, you know, we look at, well, the most accurate, I think, way to understand that type of love is to simply look at our Lord, to look at how he lives. So we can turn to 1 Corinthians 13 if you like. I'm not going to read the whole chapter again, so don't worry. We already did that. <laughs> so we're just going to go through basically from verses 4 through 8 of chapter 13. And it, it says, again, reading from the ESV, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And it does go on from there. But I'm going to stop there. You can finish that if you like. But just looking at these descriptions, these these way that this this way that Paul kind of rounds out this and if you look at these things again with that perspective of our lord and savior being the embodiment god is love follow me jesus christ the son of god jesus christ the full perfect picture you know he says if you've seen me you've seen the father this representation of god on earth the perfection of these things that we just read they, these describe him when you read these things and you think in that perspective, you see him through this. So verse 4, he says, love is patient and kind. And how patient was Jesus with the failings of his disciples over and over again? How kind and merciful and forgiving was he when he lovingly restored the apostle Peter on the beach after his betrayal? How loving was he when he came back and specifically showed his hands and his feet to Thomas. He says, here, look and see and believe. When he had dared to doubt out loud. Don't think those others around hadn't doubted either. We, we refer to doubting Thomas. But Thomas voiced what was in his heart. And Jesus came back and said, look, here, believe. How loving and patient and kind was that? Verse 5, he says, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant. And you think back and you say, how humble was our Lord as he stood wrongly condemned before Pontius Pilate, not saying a word in his defense. We're told he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And how humble was Jesus when he would not allow the hungry mob to make him king, instead choosing to serve and not be served. Mark ten forty five. for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
As we watch, you know, we're in the midst of this political wrangling right now. How many of those men that you see on TV from either party, from any, you know, whatever, if we all ran up and said, we want to make you king right now, how many would run away? How many would accept that? But we see our Lord, the embodiment of that who was not envious or boastful or arrogant. In verse 6, love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Now, how often did our Savior openly rebuke the religious leaders for their oppression and hypocrisy? You know, I remember the time he even destroyed the merchant's wares who had profaned the temple. And then, as far as rejoicing in the truth, do you remember that time as recorded in Luke when we're told that Jesus rejoiced in spirit at the revelation his babes, his children in the faith, had received? In verse 7, it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And who has borne our sins? Who has given us faith and hope beyond this frail world? Who has endured, endured unimaginable shame and torture to the very end? Our Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, in verse 8, love never ends. Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Love never ends. And that's, the, that's the hope we're looking for today. I mean, I do pray for our nation. I do pray that things change in our nation. But ultimately, we belong to a kingdom that has no end. We have a loving Savior that is our king, but is also, you know, our brother, he says. He makes us your family. He says, you know, those who keep my commandments, those are my mother and my brother and my sisters. And my, you know, that's who we are here today. And that's the kingdom that we belong to. You know, uh, when we think also of that idea of just his, his ability, his kingship in that way, I've got this verse. I'm, gonna sk- <laughs> I'm just going to skip down. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So looking at these things, how Jesus was trying to apply that to us, how has he loved us? How did he love us? How did he live his life? He loved us with purity, with goodness, with sincerity, without any selfish agenda, without any hidden motive, and he never held anything back, not even his own precious life. So when we think of love, what it is and how it is shown to our spouses, our children, our families, our friends, our co-workers. Remember our precious Lord and look to him as you're an example. Don't look to the latest romantic comedy out there. Those are not true. Don't look to Oprah. I saw her on TV the other day. I, you know, She's not the, the standard that we go by. None of these people are. You look to our Lord. If you want to know how to love, look to our Lord. 
you know, if you're not familiar with some of the references that I've given, and, and I know a lot of you in here, and I know you know what I'm talking about, but if you're not, that's okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read those accounts of Jesus' life. See how he lived. They're not long. They're actually pretty short books. Read through them. See how he lived. See what he taught. And get the full picture of what I'm talking about here this morning. So I hope this serves to give us some context. Just, you know, when, when Paul begins speaking of love, that's what he's talking about. He's pointing us to Jesus Christ. He's not setting up a new standard. He's actually looking back when he's giving this description in 1 Corinthians 13 that these things are the embodiment of Jesus. So back to 1 Timothy. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. So I want to look at that first, that first kind of aspect where he says a pure heart. So we all have a certain idea of what it is to be pure, I think of what purity means. We might think of pure gold. But really, that purity, I think, in, you know, scripturally, it simply has to do with something that is not mixed, something that is not contaminated with something else. You know, I went into our cupboard because, you know, that's a big thing with food, right? We want our food to be as pure as possible. We don't necessarily want it mixed with a lot of you know, especially these days with a lot of chemicals and bad stuff they put in things. So, but I went into our cupboard. I found some pure vegetable oil, some pure vanilla extract. And I also found some pure virgin olive oil. And here we get even another picture of purity that's also biblical, but that of a beautiful bride in a white wedding gown, the very picture of purity. But what is purity in God's sight? Now, God's word does use that analogy of gold to demonstrate purity throughout Scripture, right? And he also, you know, and, and he does that because gold, the way it's processed, you may have heard this, it's refined, means it's put in a furnace, and it's burned, it's melted, and all the impurities are taken out. Because gold in its natural state, when you pull it out of the ground, it has impurities in it, it's mixed with other things. And we realize in Scripture that our hearts also are purified in the refining trials of this life. He also uses this vision of a pure bride. The church is called his bride. One whose affections are simply not divided or mixed, but a bride who is pure and devoted in their love. But what does the Bible teach about our hearts? See, we're talking about a pure heart. That's kind of an idea of what purity might mean, not to be mixed or divided. But what does, what does the Bible say about our hearts in its natural state? And I think one of the most succinct verses that we can look at, Jeremiah 17, 9. Some of you may know this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some of your uh, Bibles might use the word wicked in place of sick. The heart is desperately wicked. But I like this word sick. I like that, that translation personally because it implies that we need a cure, that something's wrong with it, that it's sick. It needs to be healed. It needs a cure. And like many, many illnesses that we may face in this life, we can't cure ourselves. You know, wicked is certainly a graphic 
illustration of its intents and these kind of things, but I like that. I like that word. So that's what the Bible begins to say. One thing it says, you know, our Lord himself, when he was asked one time, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Now, I've asked my children this before. <laughs> Go wash your hands. It's disgusting. What have you been doing? <laughs> but they asked him because they, they put a lot more on washing their hands before they ate than we do today. So we, we just do it out of hygiene. They had a somewhat spiritual, you know, application for this things. But they asked him, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? And he says, that's that doesn't do anything because it's about the heart. And he said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. And these things, that's what defiles you. Not eating with some dirty hands. But those are the things that come out, not what goes in. And those are the things that make us unpure. And finally, in Genesis 6, we're told that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. And man, that is a, I mean, that's a nail in the coffin there, isn't it? Only evil continually. That's in our natural state. That's what the Bible has to say about who we are as people. And I think if we look at the world we live in, if we look at ourselves honestly, I think it's safe to say that our natural state of our hearts is not one of purity. We are in agreement? I mean, after all that, I think there's a wealth of evidence against that, that it's not our natural state to have a pure heart. So what is this pure heart that Paul speaks of? I mean, we've seen our hearts that are sick. They need to be cured. We've seen that we are defiled by the evil thoughts and intentions we all continually have, and we need to be cleaned and refined and purified. And these are not things that we can do for ourselves. You know, Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That first word, for the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. You see that whole thing, he lays it out, and that's obviously the Apostle Paul writing to another disciple, Titus, too. That same principle, that that's why God gave himself for us. That's why Jesus Christ gave himself for us, to redeem us from all the garbage that I just talked about that's already in our hearts and to purify us so that we can be useful for his kingdom. Does that give us kind of an idea of where your pure heart is want to come from? That it's by grace, that it's by faith, and not faith in some whatever you want it to be, but faith in the sacrifice, the death, and most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what purifies your hearts. That's what purifies us in his sight. And let's move on to good conscience. Now, this is one. We could go on and on and on about this. I mean, 
the conscience. And not only the conscience that we all have, but a good conscience. Now, conscience is a word that Paul uses often in his epistles. In the ESV translation, about 26 times. And even in the book of Acts, Luke would record Paul as he addresses the Jewish council in his defense. He says, I come to you with a good conscience. And again, before the governor Felix in his defense, he says, I have a clear conscience. This is a word that Paul liked to use, obviously. Not only in his writing, but in his speech. Now, when I think of conscience, and I think this is probably, some of you may agree with me, I think of that innate sense of right and wrong that we all have as human beings. Essentially, when we do or say something bad, it's our conscience that tells us it's bad. And But here's the problem, kind of, in that line of thought, as long as I never do anything bad, at least in my own opinion, then my conscience is unperturbed. Right? My conscience just leaves me alone, basically, if I'm good in my own eyes. Right? I mean, that's... That's where you can take that. Are you guys following me? Some, I'm seeing some, some, some different looks. But again, what I've seen in my own life and in my own conscience and in the consciences of others is that our consciences, like our hearts, can be deceived. That it can become so accustomed to something that was once so clearly wrong that it, begin, it begins to be complicit. It begins to go so far as to make something that was once so wrong seem right and good. You know, we can look at the world around us today, you know, and God says that that is going to happen more and more, that they will call evil good and good evil. We see it more and more and more and more and more and more because their consciences, as the Bible says, are becoming seared, burned, you know, searing is good for a steak. I love a seared steak. But a seared conscience, that's where we go. That's what's going, that's what happens. That's the problem with that idea, that worldly idea of what a conscience may be. You know, because we have this curse as human beings, that curse and a blessing, often a curse of reason. You know, reason is held up as this God in secular society. But it's so wicked when used the wrong way. Because what horrible act, what atrocity, what oppression, of what, you know, I mean, the most off-base stuff can be completely reasoned out, justified. We've seen it over and over again. The Nazi genocide. And beyond that, that doesn't even get as much press, the Stalinist Russian genocide, Mao's China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, responsible for hundreds and hundreds of millions of deaths, all perpetrated by peoples, by entire societies whose consciences have become so battered as to justify and promote these atrocious policies. You know, and these, you know, and these, you know, 